Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by former two-term U.S. Congressman, my co-host, Paul Hodes. The past 10 days of public hearings before the January 6th committee has been as riveting and disturbing as any testimony that has ever occurred in the U.S. Congress. A hazy picture has now become much sharper and much uglier. And the things we thought we knew are now definite about how close, really close, razor thin close, we came to a total meltdown of our system of government. We thought we knew that the vice president of the United States had been in some danger. We now know that violent attackers came within 40 feet of him and a member of the Proud Boys testified that if they had found Mike Pence, they would have killed him. We thought we knew that there were ideas circulating about a wild scheme to pretend that there was some controversy about the outcome of the election, even after 60 courts had dismissed every allegation as stupider than the last, and to have Mike Pence declare that the election would have to go back to the states. We now know that those discussions were occurring at the highest levels of government inside the White House. And we now know that not only was all of it a big lie, but that the president was told repeatedly in the words of the former Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, that it was all bullshit. Now the question increasingly becomes, where do we go from here and where should we go from here? To try to unpack all of that, we have simply one of the best legal minds out there and a familiar voice to many of you. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, the first woman to serve in her position, and she is a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Lawfare, Just Security, Slate, and NPR. Barbara, it's a pleasure to have you on Beyond Politics. Oh, thanks very much, Matt. Glad to be here with you and Paul. Well, I want to jump right into it with a quote that you gave to Greg Sargent at the Washington Post last week about all of the revelations that we've seen so far from the January 6th committee and how to view them from a legal standpoint. We actually had a Twitter exchange about it. And the question about what Donald Trump knew or should have known seems to be central to the potential legal case here. So could you explain? some of what you explained in your quote about the term willful blindness. What is it? And why is this such an important legal concept in this case? Yeah, in mostly white collar types of cases like this one, cases where you don't have violent act, where everybody can see that the problem is what the person did is illegal. Instead, people are doing things where the act itself isn't what's wrong. It is the intent behind it that is wrong. And so in these instances, claiming fraud when you know there isn't any, for example, could be criminal, but you'd have to prove that the person knew that here, for example, Donald Trump knew he didn't win the election. He knew that these claims of stop the steal were false, or that he knew that John Eastman's proposal was absurd nonsense and was not in any way a lawful proposal. How do you prove that? And so under the law, a jury would be instructed along the lines of something like, you can prove a person's intent by direct evidence if they said it out loud, if they confessed, for example, but you're also entitled to use your common sense to draw reasonable inferences. Because we can't read a person's mind, we have to rely on the totality of the circumstances to determine what it was they were thinking, whether they had criminal intent. And one of the ways you may do that is through this concept called willful blindness. 
And that is you cannot ignore the high probability that a fact is true just by turning a blind eye to it. Just because you very much want something to be true does not make it so. And so in this instance, even if Trump never said out loud, I know I lost the election, at some point there is so much evidence that he lost the election that it would be willful blindness to ignore those facts. William Barr telling him, his cybersecurity director, Brad Raffensperger, 60 courts, again and again and again, he's hearing that there's, there's no there there, in the words of Mark Meadows. I think at, at some point, a jury could conclude that he knew, even if he never said out loud that I knew. Oh, Barbara, I'm a former white collar criminal prosecutor, handled all kinds of large white collar cases when I was at the New Hampshire Attorney General's office years before I went oh, to brother. Con- Congress. Oh, brother. Well, nice to know that. Nice. Yeah. So your, your, your explanation is falling on somewhat educated ears. And for, for those of us in our audience who don't speak Latin, a kind of lost language, and in the law, there is the, this concept of mens rea. And mens rea is all about what's going on inside the mind of the defendant. And that goes to the issue of intent. And for those of us of a certain age, the discussion brings to mind the classic Watergate question from Republican Senator Howard Baker, when he said and phrased quite simply, what did the president know? And when did he know it? So I'm curious to hear what you made of the testimony this week about the extensive efforts to make clear to Trump that he had in fact lost, and including John Eastman's admission via email that we saw for the first time in these hearings, that he knew his scheme for overturning the election was not legal and would not hold up in court. So at this point, we're three hearings in, has the committee established what the president knew and when he knew it? it- I, think, I think they have established a good bit of it. If I were prosecuting this case, I'd want to know a little bit more. In a perfect world, you would also have the testimony of people like Mark Meadows, who really was the right hand there, and Dan Scavino, who was a, a deputy White House chief of staff. I think that if you're a prosecutor, you would probably serve those people with grand jury subpoenas and really probe every conversation to find out if you could prove more overtly that Donald Trump, number one, knew that he lost the election, and number two, knew that the scheme was illegal. And I think you can prove a criminal case if you can prove either of those things, by the way. Either that the basis of the whole scheme is a false premise that you won the election, knowing that you didn't, that could be a basis. And then the other one, that John Eastman's plan was a complete fabrication is absolutely inconsistent with the way we choose our presidents. And there's testimony that was presented last week that John Eastman was, was in the room with Donald Trump when they said that his plan would violate the Electoral Count Act. So that's pretty good. That's some pretty good evidence right there. So I think they have established the one day last Monday was the Trump knew he lost. And I thought that was pretty powerful. I thought that we heard from one of his data specialists on the campaign who told him that he lost. We heard from a close campaign aide who told Mark Meadows, there's no there there when it comes to these claims of fraud. And and I thought William Barr's testimony, frankly, was really devastating. It was much more extensive than I'd previously thought. It had been reported that he had told Trump it was BS. But to hear him say it himself, that they had had the conversation over multiple occasions too. It wasn't just one conversation. And just ridiculing this 2000 Mules film and other kinds of things. To know that Trump heard that 
is, is pretty compelling evidence that he heard from someone who was his trusted advisor. Barr carried his water in a lot of circumstances, but not this one. So I thought they did a pretty good job of establishing that he knew he had lost, especially as you put, point out, Paul, losing 60 court cases, more than 60 and, and not winning any. He did win one, but it had nothing to do with the outcome of the election. It had something to do with counting of affidavits, a, a procedural case. And then the other day, Thursday was the day we got the testimony about the Eastman memo. So this is the other aspect of the fraud, not the did I win, but can Mike Pence <clears throat> throw out the outcome of the election? Um, and he said, no, I mean, the Electoral Count Act is pretty clear on the role of the vice president. You're there to open the ballot, open the count the votes. And it says you may not adjourn once they get together. And, and one of the parts of the plan, plan B, if he couldn't just throw out the states where they had alternate sl slates of electors, he was to say, well, look, turn, turns out, guess what? We got alternate slates of electors from Michigan and Arizona. Huh, I wonder which of these is genuine. I guess, I guess we don't know. So we'll just have to throw them all out and we won't count those states at all. So if you don't count those states, then guess who wins? Donald Trump, all right. And then he said they, they expected, in Eastman's words, that the Democrats would howl if that happened. I think they would. I think most of us would. And in that case, he would adjourn for 10 days to give states an opportunity to, for their legislatures to select new slates of electors in Republican states you know, with Republican legislatures, knowing how that would come out as well. It violates the language of the Electoral Count Act, which says that once you begin, you may not adjourn it. Um, you can take a break for up to five days, I think it says, but it, it's, uh, it is not to be adjourned. And so this plan of adjourning for 10 days was violated his face. He was called on that in front of Trump and he admitted that it would violate that. So that's pretty good right there. And I think if you can get, you can get to a path of fraud through either of those, either he knew he lost or he knew this plan was illegal. And I think, I think they've made a good circumstantial case. As, as I said, if I were to prosecute this case, Paul, you may feel differently than I do. I don't know if you've, since you've got experience in these white collar cases, as you say, the mens rea, I'd love to hear from others, other insiders that, yeah, yeah of course he knew he lost. You know, this was all just a, a put on. Giuliani, I don't know who can testify to this, but you might have to immunize those people in a way that the committee was unable to. But when you, when you refuse to testify before a grand jury, they're not playing anymore. That That's real jail time if you can't. Actually, Barbara, just a quick, I, Paul's got to follow up. I've got to follow up. This is so interesting. I, I, we just, it, it creates more questions. Is it significant to you that apparently Rudy Giuliani, there's testimony that in the room, in the Oval <laughs> Office, it, on January 6th, said that he did not think that the Eastman scheme would hold up in court. Is that, did, does that then jump out to you hearing hearing that from the president's attorney, kind of that admission, the same kind of admission that we heard from Eastman. I do. I think these people who are his trusted henchmen, Rudy was the one on election night who said, just say we won. For now, let's, let's just say we won. That's, that's going to be the game plan for now. All right. <laughs> and they went out there and he said, in fact, we did win. Yes, I do. I think the defense, you always try to, I'm sure Paul has been through this. You always try to put yourself in the shoes of the defense attorney. What's the best argument they've got here to try to tear this apart? And I suppose it would be something like, he knew it was a legal long shot, but you're entitled to make arguments as long as you're making them in good faith. I think at some point you can show that this argument was not in good faith. If even Eastman and Giuliani knew that this flies in the face of the law, then at some point, even Trump, a non-lawyer, would have to know that this is not a good faith legal argument. So I've been having these 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 
kind of uh, humorous conversations with people who've been listening to the to the to the to the hearings and saying, you know, it's pretty unlikely that Donald Trump is going to allow anybody to make an insanity defense that <laughs> that he was incapable of knowing what's right and and what's wrong. So that, that leaves him with having to say, I was just totally stupid because I, I didn't know. I, I believe this this nutball Eastman and all of that, even though everybody told me it wasn't. And one of the things that that I'm uh, I'd like you just very briefly. I don't want to sidetrack us to to comment on is the a lot of people were was sort of aghast or not aghast, but 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 noticed that the last hearing went deeply into the Twelfth Amendment and the language of it, and as it related to Eastman and his his thinking about the constitutionality of the of the Electoral Count Act and and all of that. Um, and so it seemed like a little bit of a sidetrack, but it actually, in my view, went to show how nutty Eastman's position on paper about the constitutionality and legality or illegality and whether they could violate it without worrying about it was. What, what was your take? Yeah. Again, you have to look at what does the law say and then what did Trump believe, which could be two very different things to show that he was acting criminally. The, the theory that he's been put out is just kooky. And I think that one, one good piece of the evidence there is that conversation between Pence and Trump that we heard about, where Trump says to Pence something along the lines of, isn't it so cool? Here's the <laughs> Pence, that you could be the one yeah, to decide the outcome. Isn't that so great? Like, <laughs> don't you love the idea that you have that power? And he said, no, that's not how our country works. Pence was horrified by the idea that one person could decide it. And, you know, that's, I think, that 12th Amendment argument that kind of talks about how if, if we have this situation where the election is contested, we have a whole process and a whole structure set up so that we can choose somebody through the House of Representatives or other kinds of things so that we don't have one person making this decision. And one of the arguments there was that Eastman's arg argument just can't be right because it is so contrary to our history and the structure of our government, we were revolted by the idea of a king, King George. And so we came up with these democratic systems of checks and balances to make sure that one person didn't have enough power. And so the idea that Pence could be the one to just sort of, you know, yawn, shrug, I choose you, my friend, just is, is completely inconsistent with that theory. So I, I thought that if we could ever get Pence to testify too, so that's the other thing that we haven't heard. And I think I understand why his, his aides were really quite effective. Mark Short and Greg Jacob. Jacob testified and we heard some bits from Short, really good. And they've, they've, they gave those depositions that they were very cooperative. But it would be pretty great to hear from Pence himself. If he had a tr real trial, a real grand jury investigation, to have him come testify. I think you almost need it because they did have some conversations between the two of them, you know, that phone call. The others could hear Pence's end of it but they couldn't hear what Trump was saying. And so to get firsthand account of that, you kind of need to hear Pence. So I'd like to hear from him too. Let me just read back to you because there's so much rich information and analysis that I'm hearing here. And I'm going to have to really think about it after this show, which is a sign that you're saying a lot of intelligent things. You said something really significant to me that I guess I hadn't really heard anywhere else before a moment ago, which is there are two things that prosecutors could show here in this idea of willful blindness. 
And either one yeah. would, would lead down a pathway to prosecution. One is, if Trump could have reasonably, should have reasonably known that the big lie was BS, you could prosecute based on that. Or there's this other pathway, which is, if he had known that the whole Eastman scheme was BS, if he should have known that that was crazy, yes. that would be prosecutable as well. And that kind of connects to something that caught my eye that I wanted to ask you about, which is that Daniel Goldman, who is recognizable to people, he was the legal counsel to uh -huh. Democrats during the first Trump impeachment, very popular for his very direct questioning of witnesses during that affair, said last week that, and I'm quoting here, in my view, the criminal case is stronger against Trump for conspiring to impair the lawful function of government which focuses on that, that other pathway, the seven-part plan to overturn the election, than for obstructing Congress or seditious conspiracy, both of which center on January 6th. Now, I'm setting you up here, Barbara, because I have a follow-up to this, but do you, do you agree with that, that from what you've seen so far, that the case that seems strongest and that maybe the committee is building toward here is this idea that the entire Eastman's scheme should have been something that Trump knew was illegal, untenable, and that that in itself, that, that conspiring to impair the lawful function of government might be the way that they want to go. Yes. And what I hear Dan Goldman to be saying, and I, I know Dan and I think very highly of him, is something that I, I think I agree with, which is in some ways, the January 6th physical attack has been a bit of a distraction because trying to tie Trump to the mob, maybe it's there. And, and that would be devastating if you can show that he conspired with the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers to commit this attack. That would be devastating. But I don't know if we're going to get there. Because you know, unless you can link that up, you might not be able to prove that case. But as Dan said, there were seven, it was a seven part plan. And if you can prove any one of these, that is sufficient for a crime. Now, I think that if he was connected up to the physical attack, then you must charge that because that is such a dangerous unleashing of violence. But look at just the conversation with Brad Raffensperger, just trying to get Georgia to thwart the lawful outcome of their election would be enough. If the alternate slates of electors, if he asked Arizona to thwart their, the election with alternate slates of electors, that could be enough. If he asked electors in Michigan to do it, that could be enough. So there are a lot of different ways they were going after attacking the election. And I think if you can prove any one of them, that would be sufficient for a crime. Paul probably knows most of the time prosecutors look to hit singles, not to hit grand slam home runs. And so if you're a prosecutor looking at this case, you would look for like, where's the low hanging fruit? What's the easiest one for me to prove? It might be Georgia because you've got that phone call. Right. And, and maybe you say, this is it. This is the whole case. However, I, I, I think you've got to investigate all of it, all seven parts, because I think that if you just charged the Georgia part, it probably fails to hold him accountable for all of the misconduct. But the risk of, of charging with all of it is it can be overwhelming for a jury. I remember a case we prosecuted against Detroit's former mayor, and we had just dozens of fraudulent schemes. And at some point we had to decide, all right, we're just going to pick the top 10 and put them in the indictment <laughs> because otherwise no jury can ever get their head around this. Like, what are the 10 most egregious, easiest to prove? And let's put those in there. So I could imagine a prosecutor looking at all this Trump stuff and saying, huh, it's overwhelming. But you know what we can prove pretty easily? Georgia 
and the alternate slates of electors are pretty good. Let's just do those. And, and then we've got it and we can convict them. You were just saying something so fascinating, so interesting. I, I want to make sure that our listeners focus in on it for just a moment, because I agree with you. In some ways, it's strange and backwards that the name of the committee itself is the January 6th investigation committee. The focus that we've had from the get-go was, of course, on this mind-blowing event, this violent attack. Of course, we would focus on that. But you are making, in a way, and I think the committee is making, a very compelling case that that's not really the story here. And so I want to ask you very directly, if the attack on January 6th had never happened, the Proud Boys, all of these, all of these violent attackers. If that attack had never happened, could Donald Trump still be prosecuted for the activities in the run-up to January 6th that have come to light for conspiracy to impair the lawful function of government? Yes, although I'm not sure that we would have had the opportunities to do all this investigation without it. I think that attack was so bad that it finally got everybody's attention that this is awful. We have to look into this because this can never happen again. And so I think if it's simply been, we knew that Trump was out there kind of agitating that he won and filing all these frivolous lawsuits and other kinds of things, I think it would have been pretty easy to dismiss that as uh, politi- hardball politics. But what we're learning as a result of it is so disturbing that I think it can't go unaddressed. And so even if if there had not been a January 6th attack and you knew about all this other stuff, like the phone call with Brad Raffensperger, for example, and maybe we would have known about that. In fact, that occurred before January 6th, I think. So maybe we would have known about that. I think that call alone would be enough to suggest that this is somebody who's trying to interfere with the lawful outcome of an election. I think the answer is yes. And I think in some ways that attack is the tail that wags the dog because it was so awful and cannot be ignored, it gets the bulk of our attention. But as we said before, any one of these seven schemes that he was using to try to change the outcome of the election is itself criminal and and should be horrifying to us because it was an effort to undermine the outcome of the election. He tried to cling to power after he lost. And that should horrify any of us with or without the physical attack on the Capitol. As a consumer of, of modern media, and where where we are as a society, your what you've just said is is absolutely true, and the sex the sex appeal of all of this from from the kind of sensational approach to a prosecuting or the question of prosecuting a former president is certainly heightened by the fact of this complete whack job insurrection on January sixth. It it has brought to light all the rest of it. And I, I, I agree with you. I doubt that we'd be looking at anything beyond, oh, well, I mean, I, we've become inured to what you termed hardball politics or might be termed hardball politics. But in any other time in our history, what Trump did on the, with his seven schemes, even absent the insurrection, would, have, would, would be horrifying in itself. I, I don't know whether it would be horrifying enough these days to raise the questions we're addressing. And along those lines, we, we, we are now seeing congressional committee hearings, and we're seeing pieces of depositions 
that were taken by video and we're seeing some live live witnesses. There are people we are not seeing who have refused to testify. And we've heard a very little bit the, about the Department of Justice and frustration about not getting witness transcripts. And now there, there's been a request for deposition transcripts. As a former U.S. attorney, could you briefly unpack for folks the a little bit about the relationship between the committee and the DOG and give us your read on what you think is going on at the DOJ and what kind of case they may, they may be forming? Yeah, it's been a little bit unclear. We know that Merrick Garland came out on January 5th of this year and said that they would investigate anyone at any level who was involved in the assault on our democracy on January 6th. And I take that to include, up to and including Donald Trump, if that's where the evidence leads. Their work has been a little bit of a mystery because it would seem that they would want to put in the grand jury some of the very same people who have testified before the committee. And it seems like if they had subpoenaed some of those people, we would have heard about disputes about people who are defying subpoenas and things like that. So it doesn't sound like they have subpoenaed at least Trump's inner circle. If Rudy Giuliani had received a subpoena or Mark Meadows, I think we would have heard about that. That doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of work going on behind the scenes. And I think there likely is. They have acknowledged that they're investigating the alternate slates of electors, for example. So we know that. And I think the fact that they've asked for these transcripts, a thousand witnesses, suggests that they find them important and interesting and pertinent. We do know that they have charged seditious conspiracy against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and that about three of them have pled guilty and are cooperating. And so I suppose the next level there would be to find out whether any of those cooperators are talking about things that can link them to the next level, the higher level up. One of them has been linked to Roger Stone, was seen providing security to him on January 5th and 6th of 2001. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty close to Donald Trump. And I guess I'd want to hear from them what kind of, what if any conversations were had between you and you know, the Willard Hotel war room that was working on this strategy for Donald Trump. So I'd like to think that they are investigating beyond the attack, the physical attack. But as they have said, they start with what's in front of them and they build the case from there. I also will note that the Justice Department, I think they've said this, investigates crimes, not people. And so I think their case does emanate from the January 6th attack. But I think it will likely also get there to the point that we've talked about you know, the reason for this attack was that Mike Pence wouldn't go along with the plan. They were saying, hey, Mike Pence, because Pence wouldn't go along with the plan. And so I think that will get them there. So I think eventually, whether they're already investigating or not, they will be investigating the role of Donald Trump in all of this. And I think the request for the thousand transcripts suggests that they are, and they're very interested in it. The part that I can't understand is why the committee is resistant to turning them over. They have been demanding that the Justice Department investigate the January 6th attack and everything around it. And they say, okay, well, hand us your transcripts. And they say, whoa, whoa, that's our work. We don't want to be distracted from our work. I mean, is it really that distracting to say, here you go, Here's, here are the copies of a thousand transcripts? My only speculation there is that they don't want these to get into the public domain before they've had a chance to present it. They don't want anyone to steal their thunder. And so I don't think DOJ would turn that over, but I imagine that to the extent they need to turn over some of these things in discovery to people who've already been charged. The defendants themselves could leak them to the press or something like that. I'm hopeful that they'll get turned over at the end of this. Yeah, and we've heard some from the committee 
A couple of the members, Zoe Lofgren and Adam Schiff, have both been asked on the air about this issue of a, quote, criminal referral by the committee to the DOJ. And they've said pretty clearly, hey, we haven't had a chance to talk about what we're going to do. This isn't a statutory obligation of ours to refer any criminality. It's discretionary with the committee, whether we write a letter or, or, or do something else and make put in a call to Merrick Garland. Hey, Hey, Mr. Attorney General, you might want to take a look at whether or not the committee is, has, has created any evidentiary basis for an investigation. So there's been some of, some of that discussion, but I can't understand, as you say, the, the reluctance at this point. The DOJ could certainly be trusted to handle things sensitively. Well, okay, here's the, here's the, can I see your bafflement, Paul, and yours, Barbara, and raise you a Ginny? I, I, here's a, here's a question. What do you make? I, this is a hobby horse of mine, but what do you make of Ginny Thomas's role in all this, at least what's come to light so far? We now know, for example, that she was emailing with John Eastman, former law clerk for her husband, Clarence Thomas, probably on the former law clerks of Clarence Thomas email listserv <laughs> that she also maintains and apparently prolifically emails on. She's emailing with John Eastman. And in general, we are learning more and more about her extensive, extensive efforts to overturn the election, way more extensive than we previously knew. And yet, there's been reporting in the last week about internal discussions within the committee about whether they're going to pursue testimony from Ginny Thomas, they're going to pursue investigation of Ginny Thomas. And apparently for now, the decision is, no, they're not going to push that angle any further. Count me as among the baffled. Barbara, what do you make of that piece of this? So interesting. And as, as you mentioned, and in addition, she was emailing with Mark Meadows. I mean, she. She's very close to these insiders. My guess is part of the reason she gets this access is because she is the wife of a Supreme Court justice. And so they have made public statements along the lines of spouses get to have their own identities and their own activities. And that's certainly true. I don't think we impute everything she does or says to her husband. But to the extent there's some crossover there, she's a potential target of investigation. If she's there at the ellipse on January 6th, so she, she's a potential witness at the very least. And I think that at some point, there needs to be some pretty serious conversations about whether Clarence Thomas needs to at least recuse himself from some of these decisions. We know that he decided and actually dissented from the Supreme Court's decision requiring the disclosure of White House records from the National Archives to the investigation, to the committee. And among those records were conversations, email conversations, between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows. And so maybe Clarence Thomas had no idea those were there, but maybe his wife said something like, uh-oh, you know, if those records get turned over, I was emailing with Mark Meadows, that could be very embarrassing to us. And that influences his, his decision. And so I, I think that he is in a very dangerous place and needs to be mindful of his job. The justices aren't supposed to know the people involved because there's an incentive there, right? To prevent the turnover of these documents if it could be embarrassing to his wife. And so I think that as these cases come up, and they will, you know, no doubt these cases will go to the Supreme Court, that Clarence Thomas needs to recuse himself in any case that might in any way involve his wife. Well, so, so first of all, I would just love to have her testify in front of the committee so that she could have an opportunity to perjure herself. <laughs> and second of all, I, I just, I, I've got to push this envelope further 
you just you just pointed out that he already should have recused in a prior case and he did not and our previous guest kim whaley who for a long time was the cbs legal analyst actually this is great with with barbara mcquaid on this show i think we've hit the trifecta of the major broadcast news program legal analysts we've gotten abc cbs and nbc so i i don't know maybe we get a gift basket for that so kim whaley argued in Politico in March that there's already a strong case to impeach Clarence Thomas under 42 USC, which provides that any justice, judge or magistrate of the United States, that's any judge, shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality may reasonably be questioned. You've just pointed out that there's a pretty reasonable basis to question his impartiality in the case that's already been before the Supreme Court. And Our friend Kim goes on to write that by its terms, then this law applies to Supreme Court justices, though there exists no means of enforcing it short of impeachment. So in Kim's mind, Clarence Thomas should have already recused. His failure to do so is impeachable. And let's not forget that the New York Times also reported last week that emails obtained by the January 6th committee revealed that John Eastman claimed to know that there was a heated fight in his words inside the Supreme Court about election cases. Huh, wonder where he would have gotten some information about that, Clarence Thomas, former law clerk, John Eastman, corresponding with Ginny Thomas. He also said to another pro-Trump lawyer that the odds of the court acting would increase if they thought there was a danger of public chaos, which gives some motivation to the January 6th attack, which equals public chaos. My goodness, Shouldn't we be impeaching Clarence Thomas? Raise, raises the issue of pillow talk to a whole new <laughs> level. Yeah, I don't know if we're there yet. I certainly understand her argument. Impeachment of a Supreme Court justice is a big deal. And I'm sure it would be framed sheer politics because Clarence Thomas is the most conservative of the justices. And uh, there'd be a lot of political attack there. So I don't know if we're there yet. But I do think that There needs to be additional investigation. Where did John Eastman get this information that there were heated discussions at the Supreme Court? If somebody's talking out of school like that, uh, what else are they saying? Now, it could be that John Eastman's just a blowhard who makes stuff up. He wants to say, oh, I'm an insider. I know about these things. Maybe he's just puffing to try to make himself look like more of an insider than he is. But I think at the very least, it raises the question, how do you know this? Who are you talking to at the Supreme Court? And I think that that could be something that opens a door. And if he is talking to her and she's sharing things that are occurring at the court, there's also, you may recall, among those Mark Meadows emails that came out, there's one where she referred to something like talking to her best friend. And there was uh, some suggestion that her best friend is Clarence Thomas, that that's a euphemism that she uses for him. So to the extent he's getting involved in these conversations, that really does make the case for his recusal much stronger, I think. And then As you say, his refusal to recuse, at least an argument in favor of impeachment. So what else are you looking for out of the January 6th committee? What are you what are you what are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you what are you expecting? Well, I'm really interested in this Department of Justice Day. It was supposed to be last week and it got canceled. I found the cancellation a little mysterious. They said we don't have our video together. The way they were able to scramble with Bill Stepien on Monday when his wife went into labor showed me that they were very savvy with their video. And the idea that they had to cancel the hearing for that just does not quite ring true for me. And I'm wondering if there isn't gonna be some blockbuster that day. But even with the stuff we've already heard about, 
the story is really quite compelling about how Donald Trump was going to fire Jeffrey Rosen as the acting attorney general and replace him with Jeffrey Clark, who had prepared a letter to send out to all of these swing states to say, you know, we're seeing irregularities, which was false. And you have the ability to reconvene your legislatures and just pick your, you might want to do that. That is just so far afield from what the Justice Department should be doing, that that's pretty explosive. And so rather than have that happen, they threatened to resign in mass at the Justice Department. I, I think it could have been 100 lawyers re- resigning that night. So I think that's going to be pretty dramatic. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So, so you're not with Jared Kushner, that, that that's just whining? Oh. Uh, all the, those threats of the lawyers in the White House to resign and, and other lawyers to resign. That's just whining. I, I, we really don't need to pay attention with that because we're, we're focused on other matters. Paul, as you know, it, it, that testimony is really not relevant to anything other than right. to show what a jerk Jared Kushner is. But <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine the conversation with the, the, the lawyers at the House committee, like, should we put this in? Yeah, because it shows like what a weasel he is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's whining. Like, oh, my gosh. This is the hubris they deal with when the lawyers threaten to resign. Ooh. It's just whining. Oh my it's gosh. like one of these TV legal dramas where like the, the trope is the judge says, I'm going to allow this. And it's like <laughs> you can just see it's like, yeah, we, we should allow this because, oh, what a what a what a jerk. Let me ask. I'm the only non former prosecutor in this group. So I'm going to ask the former prosecutor who is our guest. And Paul, you're a former prosecutor. Please, please weigh in. I mean, this is maybe the ultimate case in American history of applying an opportunity to apply prosecutorial discretion, because there is an argument to be had that even if you have the goods and legally you could prosecute Donald Trump, should you, because the political blowback could be so severe. We could be talking about a civil war level type of reaction to that. And you have to, you have to, I don't, well, let me turn that into a question. Do you, as a prosecutor, take that kind of effect into account? And in the final analysis, if you were Merrick Garland, would you prosecute Donald Trump? So I think you do have to consider that prosecutors, according to the Justice Department's principles of federal prosecution, they have a whole list of guidelines that prosecutors should think about in making charging decisions. First is, is the evidence there. Can you obtain and sustain a conviction in the beyond a reasonable doubt standard? So that, that's an important part of it. If you can, then the next question is not just the can you charge, but should you charge? <clears throat> and you're supposed to look at things like, are there any alternate remedies in other jurisdictions? Like could a state prosecution achieve this? And so we know that there's that Georgia investigation. Is that enough? And it probably only covers a a small portion of this larger case, so probably not. There are civil cases pending brought by members of Congress and Capitol Hill police officers. Would that be enough? That focuses solely on the January 6th, not the whole broader scheme, so I think not. Does it advance a substantial federal interest? I think so. Protecting our elections is a substantial federal interest. But as you point out, could it lead to civil unrest and even civil war? And I think the answer is yes. So I think you have to be very careful about that. I imagine they will sit around a table and hash through the the pros and cons of all of that. But I think where I come down at the end of the day is if the evidence is there, if I were Merrick Garland, I think you have to charge this case. It is such an egregious affront to our electoral politics that I fear if you don't charge it, then someone else will just do it again. One of the reasons we, we file criminal charges is to deter people from engaging in this conduct in the future. And I fear that without criminal charges, either Donald Trump or someone who does it better will try it again in the future. 
And I think that's simply intolerable. So that's where I come down. Now, here's an interesting scenario. You indict him on one day and on the next day, Joe Biden pardons him. Oh, that, that could be interesting. That would be something you'd have to think about. That would be, boy, the politics of that one. Although I have to say the upside of that, just, just purely from a selfish point of view is we would have a lot of material for shows at that point, Paul. Paul, let me give you 30 seconds. You're both a former member of Congress. You have colleagues, many of whom we've had on this show who were literally under fire on January 6th. You also were a former prosecutor. So you've got 30 seconds. Would you prosecute Donald Trump? I, I agree with with Barbara that this assuming that what we know is 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 what there is and we're going to learn more this is such an affront to the foundation of our democracy it is so serious we are and as Judge Ludic said Donald Trump and frankly Trumpism poses a clear and present danger ongoing to this country it's an ongoing conspiracy the effects of which they're trying to put on us in 2024. I think you have to prosecute this case. Well, we're going to have many opportunities, unfortunately, to continue to talk about this. And we will continue to keep an eye on the analysis of former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid. Professor, thank you so much for all of your insight here with us on Beyond Politics. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. 